Hi everyone and welcome to episode 26. It's Leanne here and we've got something a little different for this episode of the Early Education Show. Lisa, Liam and I are taking a break from our usual ranting and bringing you a recording of a presentation made by Chill Out to OMET. We've talked about OMET way back in one of our earlier episodes and uh, we'll include the link so you can see what OMEP does. But the important organisation that we're talking about tonight and hearing from is Chill Out, which stands for Children Out of Detention. Now, Chill Out has a mission to promote the rights of children seeking asylum and advocating for law and law reform that sufficiently protects the rights of these vulnerable children. So they are standing up for children's rights. Chill Out was uh, created many years ago when we had large numbers of children in detention and when we no longer had children in detention in Australia, the organisation was closed down. Unfortunately, they had to establish themselves again um, and are still working on this mission. In this talk, you'll hear Zoe and Nauru speaking about uh, what Chill Out does their actions and most importantly their advocacy on behalf of children and something to listen out for is the discussion about how we need to make changes to laws so that children are not going to be in detention in the first place and that's exactly what uh, the goal will be is to create laws so that children's rights are upheld and we don't see children in detention in Australia at all. Hope you enjoy the talk. There's a few bangs and bumps, but uh, I'm sure you'll be able to hear most of it. Um, so what's the plan today? So we are going to, very brief, because we don't have a lot of time, um, we will do an introduction and then we'll talk about what the current situation is with onshore and offshore processing detention centres. Uh, we'll go in a little bit about the brief history of what detention has started briefly. We'll do a little bit more. Um, and then Zoe will talk about life and detention in general. Um, and then we'll look at the status of children's rights. It was briefly mentioned over here, but we'll go a little bit more into what the current status is and how Australia is reacting to such reports and findings. Um, and then one of my favourites, we'll look at how the media is responding to this crisis. Mm-hmm. And then Zoe will talk about alternative detention, which is a big focus for Chill Out and many other um, groups working in the refugee sector right now. Uh, and then we'll quickly conclude and we'll open the floor to question our Q&A. Um, I personally, that's the ending is probably my favourite because you guys probably have questions that we haven't answered or you might have questions about how you can take this to the classroom, even with a young audience, or how you can spread this message among other teachers like yourself. So that's the general plan today. If there's anything else you wish us to add or add to this, please let us know. Um, so current situation, who can put a number on how many kids are in detention right now? Any idea? Okay, so that's one of the main parts. There's a clue to... in the room. There's a clue in the room. 44? <laughs> there is 44 plus. How you know that? 44 plus. She cheated. You are um, so <laughs> clever, Leah. <laughs> so from the stats released November 30th, which is the latest stats the government releases, Released, um, we have 44 children currently being held on Nauru, which is one of three offshore processing detention centres Australia is running. The first one's Christmas Island, which is technically part of Australia, so they don't really classify that as offshore. The second one is Manus Island, and the third one is Nauru. So in Christmas Island and Manus, there are no children right now. Nauru is the only one that's currently holding 44 children. The ages of these children range from newborn to, I think, 18. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them are turning 18 soon, um, which means they are no longer classified as a child, and therefore they fall off the radar. And, and the number will go and down. And the number will go down. It was, it was really interesting, because about a few months ago, the numbers went down, and I was really happy, because I thought the child was either released or into the community or whatever. But the number went down by three. So I was like, oh, three children are free. No, they just turn 18. Mm-hmm. So they, they're still there. They're just not a child, and it's a bit sad. But that's how many children are in detention now, Rue. The PLUS stands for the five children that are currently being indicated in the government stats um, as being held on detention in Australia. So on the official stats, it says less than five. What they mean by that is kids who are either in transit, so they're being moved from one um, centre to another, um, kids who may have been moved to Australia for medical attention, 
So that number, the government's using it as a backup for kids, just to sort of tweak kids around, move them around, in and out of detention. From inside knowledge, we've heard that five is probably not that accurate. There are more kids than five. Like, for example, I personally know of kids in Bellwood Detention Centre right now who, it's funny, because they're not in detention. They've been redefined as housing. So before, I think it was prior to about maybe 12 months ago, they were classified, at, classified and defined as detention housing, but now they're just housing, which doesn't fall into the category of detention. What that means is right next to Billwood Detention Centre where the men are held, they have eight houses, eight families. Um, from what I, last time I saw them, there's about 12 kids all up in those eight households. Um, they're in housing, they're in detention. So those kids are not included in that figure. There's a lot of numbers here that you really have to pay attention to because outside it looks like 44 in Nauru and about 5 in Australia, but there are still hundreds of kids in community detention. There are hundreds of kids still on bridging visas, waiting for, uh, waiting for their claims to be processed. So it's very important that people like you and I don't forget those larger numbers. Um, can I just ask, what's community detention? Community detention. So, do you want to speak about that? We'll jump straight to alternative detention. Oh, do it. No, there are alternatives to detention. Okay. Um, so, one of them is community detention, which means that the family is living in the community in a house. It's legally, they're legally defined still as in immigration detention. So, when they're in the community, though, it means that they're checked up on a lot. They have to stay the night there. They can't stay anywhere else that night, and the parents can't work. So we do think that this is a much better alternative than detention, and we're wondering if it's legally the same. Why aren't we just putting it there? Because it means that you know children then get to go to their friends' birthday parties or join the school soccer team, um, which they can't do if they're in detention. And then there's also a bridging visa, which is um, yeah used until their proper immigration status. Is so bridging visa is granted to people who apply for protection. And while the government's assessing their application, during that assessment period, they granted a bridging visa. And once the application is granted or refused, then they get moved on from bridging visa. So there's about, like, what, 20,000 people currently on bridging visa who are just hovering around. Some of them have been on bridging visa for over three years, over four years, some of them. I know a man who's been on a bridging visa for five years now, and he's still waiting for the process just to, just to move on and go through. And he's been through every single process. Um, and the really good thing about community detention is the conditions vary from family to family. So kids can go to their local schools. So in the school that I work at, um, not as much anymore because I work here now, but in the school that I used to work at, we used to get lots of kids, because um, I used to work in the inner western suburbs, lots of kids who are in community detention, who do come to school. And you can see the difference that that makes to them. Like within a day, within two days, within a week, these kids are smiling, they're happy, they've made friends, and their their life is just so much brighter and happier. And that's the change you give you can give a child from keeping them behind bars as opposed to community detention. From Chillout's perspective, yes, we want the kids out of like locked up detention, but as an alternative, please consider putting putting these children in community detention. So while the process is being, is being processed, and while you're taking your time thinking about what to do with these children's lives. These children can continue living their lives in a normal primary school, in a normal setting, with normal people who are not trying to lock them up. And so that's what we get. Yeah. And for the families as well, mm. as well, means the mums can do their own cooking. And, they, and dads, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> the parents can cook and, you know, be part of a household and have a bit more privacy and feel like they have a bit more control of their lives. Yeah. I have a question. How are they allowed to go to public schools if they are under a bridging visa? You need to have a specific visa to be able to go to public schools. So, Otherwise, you have to pay. No, you're right. That's a good question. So this is. Let me start from step one. So a child of a family comes to Australia by boat. The blanket rule in Australia now is, and there's no exception to this. The blanket rule is, if you come to Australia by boat, you will not be resettled in Australia permanently. What that means is, you will never get permanent. Uh, even right, if you want, you'll never, never get citizenship. Mm -hmm. No matter how long you live here no matter if children are born here once you, after you arrive here. And two, what that means is the only option for you now is temporary visas. So you come to Australia by boat, you're you know, either intercepted or sent back or whatever. So if you're lucky enough to be sent to one of the processing centres, either on, on, in Australia or to one of the offshore processing centres, you apply for a temporary visa. 
Right now, there are two forms of temporary visas you can apply for. The first one's called a TPV, which stands for Temporary Protection Visa. That lasts for three years. After three years, your claims will get reprocessed, and if your claims are still valid, you'll be regranted another further three years. So every three years, your process will get retested. Okay? The second option is a SHEP, which is Safe Haven Enterprise Visa. <laughs> that goes for five years. Um, very similar conditions. After five years, it'll get reassessed again. But the only difference between a SHEP visa is for the three out of five years that you're on a SHEP visa, you must either work full-time or study full-time seems like a really good visa, however, there are restrictions to it. So when they say study or work, it must be in a rural area. So the government will designate postcodes that you can work in that sort of satisfy the criteria of working full-time. So there's a lot of little, you know, grey areas here, but those are the two options. So you apply for one of those two visas now. It could take between one month to five years for you to get a result for so currently the people on, the men on Manus and the families and young children on Nauru, they've been there for three, four, five years, simply waiting for the process to be assessed. Some of them have been assessed to be general refugees. They, they have been re uh, assessed. If you're in Nauru, your only option is to get resettled in Nauru. So you will never get forward to Australia. That's the fine print there. A lot of people don't understand how that's the case, but it is the rule, it is the deal that we've made with Nauru, and if you're, if you're found to be a refugee, you get resettled in the Nauruan community. Now, there are lots of issues about that. I can go into that if you wish. Um, so that's what happens. Yeah. That's, it's very it's very complicated. It's from where it was five years ago where it is now, it's a lot clearer in terms of either TPV or CHEV, but the process, the waiting list, is incredible. I was speaking to the director of RACS, which is Refugee Advice and Casework Services, one of the two providers um, that the government's contracting their cases to. Now, RACS is the major provider of legal service, and the director just told me that there's a 60,000 waiting list of clients that they haven't even seen yet. There's a waiting list of 60,000 people, individuals and family, simply waiting to see a lawyer so then they can know what to do. So that's a bit of a predicament that we have, and we do need to face that. Does that answer your question? So it's it's still on like, if ref, people that come as refugees by sea, mm -hmm. so if they if they by plane by plane, they they can still apply for a, for a permanent permanent protection visa. Yeah. And my understanding was that there's been a bit of a curfew on the public publication of boats that are arriving. We're not we're not like we have we don't hear if boats are being turned back or arriving now. I just wondered if you. Yes. Legally speaking, we should know what's happening out there in the seas. Uh, legally speaking, the government seems to be releasing most information. Um, however, the point at which they release such information is a bit controversial because, you know, a boat could come today and we, could, we may not hear about it for another 12 months. But the government stance is you will hear about it, so we're not lying to you, we're not hiding, to you, hiding anything from you. So, yeah, we, we, we do know about it. When do we know about it? Is Yes, that's a good question, yes. And that is one of the main reasons why the government's very strong hold on where they stand. Because their opinion is, look, the main reason why we're doing what we're doing is to stop the boats. And the reason why we want to do that is because there are debts at sea. Okay, That's a very black and white approach the government's having. Um, debts at sea have been reduced, boats have stopped. So now they're using those two points as their flagship deal. So whenever we talk to them, they're like, no, but the debts have stopped. No, but the boats have stopped. What next? So they've achieved their purpose really well. And therefore, the human element lost in that cause is not covered or addressed by the yeah. yeah. And just to add to that, kind of separately on the same issue, I was just in Indonesia and visited um, a school set up for refugee children there. Because as you might know, in Indonesia, there are um, 14,000 refugees there right now. They have no access to education. Parents can't work, any of that. So I visited a community there. And yeah, it was really interesting talking to them because I, like, I was there with my mom and we asked, is anyone thinking of getting on boats? Because they've all been there from three to five years and they said, no, no one's getting on boats anymore. 
so they're waiting and waiting, but they've just been there for so long, and their kids are there, and they're running out of money, like it's a really tough situation. So the boats stop, but the Australian government, that's really good for them, because it's out of our territory, but a lot of the media never was forgetting about um, people who are suffering and waiting in Indonesia for that to happen. Do we provide anything to Indonesia? Not really. We have, um, so yeah, Indonesia, through the UNHCR, they usually get relocated in Canada, New Zealand, um, the US and Australia. Australia has just been stopped. I was there in November, um, and we all know. And yeah, so no one's been settled in Australia in the last year or two. But usually they're the four countries people would be settled in. Um, and I'm assuming we're supposed to put our numbers. I thought that was. Our humanitarian intake numbers are going as they were. They have been reduced in the last number of years. Um, and often the government does use our humanitarian intake through, like UNICEF, through the official way, as they call it, um, to hide the rest of the numbers that we're not helping out. And, you know, we're seeing the largest refugee movement since World yeah. War II right now. And we're the only country in the world right now that, that puts children detention, mandatory, a uh, mandatory detention for a prolonged amount of time. So that says a lot about where we are as a country. Um, UK is a really good example to bring up, I guess. So they had a very, they had very similar policies of locking up children indefinitely for a long time. And then I think it was in 2005-ish, maybe five, ten years ago, don't quote me on that. Um, they, they reduced the number of years. So a child can only be kept in detention for 72 hours. Um, and within that 72 hours, they must be processed, they, something must be done to them or with their case, and they must be moved out of detention within 72 hours. So from Chillout's perspective, and, and a lot of other refugee sector groups, one of, our, one of our goals is like, fine, keep them in detention when they first arrive, but let's put a cap on the number of days. Let's make it two days. Or make, let's, you know, let's make it seven days if you, have, if you must. But let's put a cap on it, make sure that there is definitely a fixed period that can no longer keep a child in detention. So hopefully we followed the example of UK soon. Yeah. We tend to be following more US-related <laughs> policies these days, yeah. but let's hope that we... Yeah, it's just shocking to know that the UK can hold them for 72 hours, mm. and we're holding them for up to five years. Yeah. And they can only, they can, that can be extended to mm. only up to a week if they get um, a signed form from the immigration minister. So 72 hours maximum, and then unless they get proper more signage, and then a week is the absolute maximum. Yeah, and that just never going. happens. I think there were cases, three cases of that, and there were like exceptional cases where they did get the one-week grant. But that's three exceptional cases over the last 12 months, which is how it should be, if anything. Yeah. <laughs> but what about children being born in detention? Is there... I mean, there are families, so is there much of a birth rate within... No. So children born in detention, and there's a number of them, you'll be surprised yeah, about There are quite a few of them. Um, they're classified as aliens, they're classified yes. as whoever, like whatever their status their mum and dad have. Belong Nawe. Yeah. They come out of the sky. But yeah. they're, so they're in that 14. They're in that 14. Yeah, there's oh, several yeah. of them in that. And okay. there's kids in the community right now who are born here. There are kids in housing right now who are also born here. And that goes against our legal ba basic legal principle where if a child is born in Australian territory, then they are Australian by and I'd like to bring up this really nice policy paper that came out of the UK. I can't remember the author's name, but his, um, the way he explained it is the purpose and consequence of theory. So the purpose of the terrorists that, that the government's trying to achieve is the government's trying to keep people out of Australia that they don't want. Specifically, they're labelling them as terrorists and you know, so on and so forth. So the purpose is the terrorists, keep people out. This, the this uh, theory explains that the purpose is valid. Yes, you know, we should keep the terrorists out. We should know who is coming in and out of our border. That's a valid purpose. Good on you. Keep it up. Thank so we've you. got the purpose all set, which is to keep them out. Now, the purpose and consequence theory, the consequence theory goes, the consequence is now leading to children in detention indefinitely. It's now leading to families being separated. It's now leading to human rights violations and child rights violations and so on. So the purpose and consequence theory then says that the way that we do it, the process that we lead, the process that leads to the consequence is what must be changed. And I agree with that. So yes, I agree with the purpose. I agree that we should have a secure border. I agree that we should have, we should know who's coming in and out of our nation. But the process is what the refugee sector is now trying to change. So you cannot keep children 
locked up, you cannot have gross human rights violations that leads to such consequence. So the process is what we're trying to change dramatically, and that is a process on our side, because the government is very, 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 very firm and very solid about where they stand with the purpose and consequence. They sort of don't really care about how they get there. Um, unfortunately, they have bipartisan support now. It's not just the Liberals, it's not just, the, it's not just Labour, it's li Liberal and Labour in this together. And usually with a problem, like the environmental problem, we have one side, one group, one party on our side, and the other on the other side. So we kind of know whose side we're on. But now it's the government, including Labour, against the rest of us, which is why we're in a bit of a predicament, because we have to change everyone now, not just one party. Any questions? Life in detention? The fun yeah. part? Oh, so yeah, it's just an indication of if you didn't know where Nauru is. It's tight, you can drive around it in 20 minutes. There we go. Yeah. A bit of a walk, ramble, I won't. Um, yeah, and there's 249 kids in community detention at the moment. Temperature's 40 plus every day. And there's mozzies and heavy girls. Heavy girls heard about Baby Asha. Mm. Baby Asha. So she was a child who was held on um, Nauru about 12 to 18 months ago. Um, she was two years old, I think. She was two, two and a half. She got moved to um, Perth Hospital, Brisbane, Brisbane, and pretty much, long story short, she was in critical condition. The doctors banded together and refused to discharge her because they, you know, it was their legal obligation not to discharge parent patients who they knew were going back to health. Um, but I recently heard that baby Asha, one of the main reasons why she had such a medical condition is because she swallowed a millipede because there's a millipede outbreak in Nauru. And that's how, because they live in tents, and there's millipedes everywhere, so of course a two and a half year old is going to pick it up and eat it. So that's the kind of situation that we're dealing with here. Yeah. So, is Nauru, sorry to take a bad geography, is, Nauru is a sovereign nation. Yes. Like, and it's just, it is one island. One little island, yeah. One island. Yeah. yeah. And it's a democracy. Fun, of sorts. Fun fact, <laughs> it used to be um, the richest nation mm. in the world, per capita, because they had phosphate, my mm. phosphate, yeah. Um, yeah. And they end up loving it all, and that's why they're needing Australia to come in and give billions of dollars. Okay. So the, the, the living conditions for most Nauru, it's pretty yeah. terrible. Yeah, it's pretty Nauru, it's terrible. The schools are bad, the hospital is bad. Yeah, fine. And the biggest insight I got from, about Nauru, like local Nauru, was actually from teachers. So we had some whistleblower, whistleblower teachers about like six, seven months ago. So three teachers who had been teachers, Australian teachers who had gone to Nauru, taught there, and then came back. And they, you know, they one of the guys uh, sneaks a, pe a pen camera. What the, was that what they called it? A camera with a little pen on it. Um, and he spoke, and he took photos of both the centre and just the general local area. It is. You've never seen this in Australia, and you never will. And it's not even like third world countries. It's 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 a bit rubbish. There's rubbish everywhere. There's asbestos infiltrated buildings. Like the locals are quite aggressive. There's dogs everywhere, and I don't mean like one or two puppies. Aggressive dogs that can actually kill you on the streets, just roaming around. Um, it, the local Nauruan population is quite sick of the situation with refugees because, as one of the teachers beautifully explained it. We, as a nation, are pouring so much money into Nauru that's going straight to the top 1%, yeah. to the Not politicians, to the big, mm -hmm. the, the big heads. And the 99%, they're seeing, they're doing the labour, or they're, they're just seeing people, rich people get richer, and that's getting them quite frustrated and quite unhappy. And then when something like one of the local detainees goes into the local areas, they get quite aggressive over small things. So that's just, yeah. Yeah, here's a bit of a chart just to show you bit hard to see. Um, but from 2012 to now, about the number of kids in detention. So they were low-ish, and then there's a huge spike. That's actually when I started when there was almost 2,000 kids in detention. So it has gone down quite a lot from 2000, and we're very grateful for that, and we'll celebrate that. But we actually believe that um, one child in detention is too many. And, yeah, so 44 plus is just each child losing a lot of their future. I think it's important for people to see children as children, not as refugee children or migrant children. At the end of the day, children are children. End of story. And, yeah. yeah, so I'll share a bit about what life's like for a child in detention. Um, so I'd always kind of heard that children get called by their boat ID numbers, but I didn't, that didn't really kind of click with me until I was working on a campaign, which you'll see soon 
where I was writing to kids in detention to hear about their experiences by email, um, who were in Darwin at the time, and they wrote back to me from age 6 to 18, um, obviously six-year-olds had their parents' help, but they would end it with, you know, from their name and then put their boat ID number at the bottom. And that really hit me because maybe they realized I didn't need to know their boat ID number, but they just kind of associated that with themselves. And if you've seen the film Chasing Asylum, which I recommend you do, um, they actually sort of footage and show that on our route the children are calling each other by their numbers. So that dehumanization is just unbelievable. And another time that's happened in history, it didn't go too well. Um, so that's really, really heartbreaking for us to see. As I kind of mentioned, the healthcare and schooling is really, really bad at the moment. So the kids saved the children used to be there, and they would run a school um, in the detention centre, which was a small classroom, but it was just like the children's haven. There was aircon, they just could feed children, it was colourful, they were really happy. And then unfortunately that shut down, they started going to the local Naroon school. The facilities are just, yeah, pretty disgusting. Like, yeah, we actually showed a photo of just the toilets. It's just revolting. Um, as Nauru said, it's kind of worse than a third world country at times. And the kids are getting severely bullied. So a lot of the children have actually stopped going to school because they're just getting bullied and people are hitting them and it's just a really horrible learning environment for them to be in. The play facilities, there's barely any. In the film Chasing Asylum, we saw there's like one tiny tree. Otherwise, um, there are rocks, which is really tough. So babies can't really learn to crawl, which is really bad for their development. As well, there's very little privacy um, for children and families. A lot of families can be um, put with other families in tents, and it's just, yeah, it's just not very nice for a child to feel safe growing up. <coughs> so they're in tents, they're not in permanent. It's been changing a bit, yeah, with not a lot of information coming out. Um, we did hear recently that there was a family that was in a more aircon. Um, kind of baby-friendly area, area yeah. like the so there's like the housing area. is almost like a um, you can just build it up in the day and fall, fall, yeah. fall, 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 so there were facilities that were air-conditioned and it had like a microwave and a fridge and like well suited this is recent though because they were intense for a very very, very long, long time. time and this was in area 9 and it was interesting because there were reports of babies being moved back into tents and just like terrible conditions and we did some digging into it and basically what happened was the conditions are now ruined, now ruined. Um, detention centres are so bad that Area 9 is right next to the medical centres. So what happens is when the, when medical needs get higher, for example, there are patients who really need these services, like an air-conditioned room, more than babies, the babies then kick, get kicked back outside into tents. So, which, you know, that tells you something. So if, if a patient is sick enough to kick, like, a one-year-old out of proper accommodation, that's the kind of situation that they can um, yeah, and also the sad thing is, you know, children aged 5 to 17 are diagnosed with mental health mm -hmm. and illness more rates than adults. Like, it's just unbelievable that children are talked to attention and what they've gone through. Not only a lot of the time their parents are going through mental illness, but then they're really suffering as well. And, yeah, to hear things that six-year-olds are saying about how their life feels totally hopeless and they just want to give up, and um, a child would tell us they just wish they drowned at sea because what they're going through every day is just hell on earth for them. So. And it has such a huge impact on them. I have a story that I always share with teacher crowds, because I think it was that moment in my life that I really it hit me. So I was teaching at a, at a local primary school, and I had a child join my school. Um, I won't mention any names, just confidentiality issues, but he was in year one, and it was the first year in his life that he'd ever attended proper schooling. He came by boat. And my classroom had these massive windows. They were really massive windows, like most primary schools do in Australia. They had these massive windows. And this child who'd never been to school, he didn't know what a window was. The fact that he could look out a window that didn't have bars or that wasn't blacked out, that didn't have any restrictions on it. So one, he was staring at it from far away, was afraid to go near it. And he didn't know the vocab to speak about this thing in either his language nor in English. He happened to speak, I'm, I'm Sri Lankan Tamil, so this child was from Sri Lanka, and he couldn't, he didn't know what it was. And then when I explained to him, and I held his hand, and I walked across to the window, and I was like, look, you can stand here, and you can look at the school. And he was like, are, are you sure? Like, the guards might come and get me. And I'm like, and that's the kind of impact that we're having on five-year-olds. Like, 
they may not have explicitly banned it from the window, but he knows that's not allowed. A window is not a concept in his life. And that's, it's those little things that make all the world's difference. And that child, I'll let you know, is doing fabulously in school now. So, you know, that's thanks to the schooling system. He's doing great. He's back to normal. He's still on a bridging visa, but he's happy. And that's, I think that's what we are aiming for right now. Start school. Yeah, the sad thing is, you know, while these kids in tension, they're going through this, but um, a close friend of ours who used to work with Chilat, his name was Mohammed, he spent three years on Nauru um, from age 10 to 13, and he just, his experiences were really, really tough. And he's 26 now, and he tells me that he still has nightmares about his nights. Um, and he just hasn't really been able to move on. He's, he's no doing question. really well. He's finished a law degree, a business degree, he was school captain, like he has... He's achieved so much. He's achieved so much. He's an incredibly smart, beautiful man. But yeah, it still really, really haunts him. And it's just so sad to see that carry on into someone's life. Are there many unaccompanied children? Yeah. Yeah. So, like young boys. Yeah. yeah. Where, where are they being held with the same? With yeah. the men. So, 44 plus the number on um, Australia includes unaccompanied children as well. Inclusive. Unaccompanied children. Yeah, it's inclusive of all And they're he- are they held somewhere separate from the adults? No. With the all together. So yeah. those, horror, those horror stories of children being sexually and physically abused. Are... Yeah, because the family's in here. Okay, yeah. speaking of being abused, we can probably speak about the Nauru Nauru files. Um, so I started this job in June, and two weeks into this job, Nauru files were released. Do we know much about this? So this is what well, this is what makes me really unhappy because this was a groundbreaking and heartbreaking document that came out mid last year, and yet it was not covered by any media apart from the Guardian, which which uh, released this. And that makes that's heartbreaking because the the facts that came out of this, uh, essentially there were over two thousand documents that were released. Um, the document is the wrong word. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's case. What's the word I'm looking for? So these were incident reports. Incident reports. So there were over 2,000 incident reports filed by teachers, doctors, caseworkers, and social workers who worked in Nauru. Now there were incident reports of sexual abuse, any sort of incident that were you know important enough to be reported. The one stat that always gets me is children were overrepresented massively. 51.3 percent of the reports. That's over 1,000 individual accounts related to children. Over how, two years was it? It was about like two-year reporting period. That's over a thousand individual accounts of children, and there were only about less than a hundred and fifty kids in Nauru at that time. So eighty so, percent of the population at the time were children. Yeah, and they made a, yeah more than half off. And these incident reports range from simple physical abuse to sexual abuse to lack of medical services to emergencies that weren't addressed properly, just lack of duty of care, left, right, and centre. And it was picked up by one major media, and that was it. It was not even mentioned by any other major media outlets, and that's just how it was. I, Zoe and I actually met up with one of the Liberal MPs a few months after this was reported. He's a Liberal MP, he's in quite an important seat, and we asked him, like, you know, just at the end of our meeting, we're like, so what's your opinion on the Nauru files? And he was like, wait, what? He didn't know. He just did not know. Because, and I don't blame him, because it was not reported enough, and people just didn't care enough to dig into it. And the refugee sector groups that did try to advocate and get this word out, we obviously didn't do a very good job, because I can speak to anyone down the road and only like one out of ten would, may, may have heard of it. So it's such a shame. Any questions on the narrow files? I think the next slide is... So this is what they looked like, and they were reported by like teachers and, and most of the inf- personal information had been redirected, but you can access this online. Um, it took me about half a day to read all 2,000 reports, and it was... It was it, it was a read. It was a proper read. You need an entire day to process this. It was heartbreaking, especially in relation to children. And it, like I couldn't comprehend that this was happening under Australian mm-hmm. detention centres. And that's another thing as well. Um, Australia, Australian government never, and I, I, I hope the day comes when they do acknowledge it, but they never acknowledge the fact that Nauru is being run by Australia. I'm a lawyer, I can tell you the legal facts are Nauru and detention centres are run by Australia and Australian contractors. However, just two days ago, Peter Dutton was on the radio and he said something on the lines of um, the, torture conven- the Torture Prevention Convention was signed recently, everyone know about this? So the uh, 
Convention for Torture Prevention was signed by Australia, which is a great move. And Peter Dutton, in relation to this, was saying how it's a great start, and the UN asked if detention centres were covered in this sort of treaty. And we said, look, if you think, and not that we think, but if you think that Nauru and Manus are part of our detention centre regime, then go ahead and visit them. So he, again, classically refused to accept that they were our responsibility. And that's the crux of the problem. You know, we sent them there, we, give, we fund them, we provide the contractors, we make the rules, but technically it's Nauru and rules that they're following. And yet, it's not our responsibility. That's just how... So why were the files released? Was it, that it was a leak. Yeah. Oh, it was a leak. It was a leak. Yeah. 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 They're not accurate. Spent time in 
literally every detention centre in Australia in Nauru, including when he was in Indonesia actually, and he's finally been released into the community, which we were, it was like Christmas Day when I found out, because I'd been talking to him online for a while. And he sent us this letter, and he said, um, when we arrived in that hell, meaning Nauru, um, on the 21 of August, they took us to RCP3, which was the, was the detention centre. Under my feet were full of round, small, and some pointy rocks, which caused backache, footache, and also they were dangerous for the kids. I can remember that the rocks were the only toys the children had. I'm afraid to, of going back to that place where they abused us sexually, mentally, and physically. I don't want to be in detention. What was my fault? Asking for refuge. Help me, please. That's a child talking about sexual abuse explicitly. Yeah. And That's he's not normal. Like 12, 14, and he can understand kind of those concepts. And also, just to reiterate the effect of keeping a child in detention in community is he is in community now. He's in a house where his mum and dad can cook for him, he's got a little brother. He looks much happier and he looks much. Hope, so much more hope in his life right now. At least he's not going through that. Yeah. Um, so here's another 18-year-old child who said, I've not had a decent education or even a proper name for three years. I've been known as a number. I want to go to TAFE or uni, but I can't. A 17-year-old said, Some girls get harassed by the guards and they can't do anything. Who are you going to go to complain about it to? The guards? So, yeah, just kind of to show you how, yeah, these kids, and I was just getting like six-year-olds, like every age, boys and girls, and that just the way they explained what they were going through was impressive in a way on how much they could share their emotions and feelings and what they've seen, like their writing ability in that way of sharing is actually quite high, but it's just so heartbreaking horrible to see how much they've gone through, and yeah, they're having to grow up so quickly in an environment. Just They've lost the childhood and we're, we're taking away the childhood away from them. Yeah. And the government doesn't like the way we mention childhood because they know it's quite a sensitive topic for most people. Um, so whenever we mention childhood, it's just often ignored or just... Yeah. Um, okay, so one of the last few things I want to mention today is the media, uh, one of my favourite personnels. Um, media reporting of the situation in Nauru and Manus have been irregular, um, inaccurate, or they've often just not reported on it. Um, and I think being complicit and implicit is just as bad. They did report on the uh, riots for that stuff. Mm. <laughs> All the riots, anything <laughs> negative. Um, so the media and politicians sort of complement each other. So the politicians will come out and say there was a riot, media will report about it, and then the politician will then say, well, it was reported so, so vastly, look what's happening. And then they'll sort of complement each other, and it'll build to the point where at the end we say, Riots is what's happening every day in Nauru, and people are dying, and Australians are losing their taxpayer money over it. That's the narrative that they're building. And that's not me exaggerating, me being sentimental, that is just a fact. While politicians and media complement each other quite well. Um, the reporting, I think, personal opinion, I think it's gotten a little bit better in the last sort of few months or so, um, especially in terms of the US resettlement deal that we're about to speak about. Um, so what that is, is during the Obama administration, uh, about, I think it was announced in mid-November, wasn't it? Uh, Mid-November, so US agreed to take on an unknown number of refugees and asylum seekers from Manus and Melbourne. It could have been 10, it could have been 1,000, we didn't know at that point. It was just announced, US deal, it's happening. Um, in the next few weeks, before, during the Obama administration, people, uh, the US officials came to Nauru and Manus, and a number of refugees and asylum seekers were assessed. They were assessed under US law, so whatever laws applied to refugees and asylum seekers in the US were being applied to these guys. Fair enough, is they're the country that they're taking on. Now, you may ask, what do we think about this? Um, the refugee sector were very careful about what we said because it was the first time that the Australian government had done anything to sort of in terms of getting them out. So we were happy in terms of the movement that we got. Um, we weren't too happy because there were still very many questions that were unanswered. For example, what happens to families who have been separated? So we may have mum here in Australia and dad in Manus. So we might have dad in Manus and mum in Nauru. What happens to family separation? What happens to the people who don't get picked? 
who don't get selected, who don't pass their extreme vetting process. There were a lot of questions unanswered. So we went through like a month or two of what ifs, what about them, what's this, what's that. Um, government did not release any major information apart from the fact that there was a deal going on. And then there was a bit of hovering, hovering period during the administration transfer to Trump. Saying it makes me sick. <laughs> Trump administration. Um, and for the first two weeks, hey, don't go into Harry Potter territory. I'm very sentimental there. Um, so yeah, so we had two, two, about two weeks of nothing really happened, and I was personally very happy because nothing happening is probably a good thing because we knew the assessments were still happening in our own manners. So that was a good start. And then that famous phone call with Malcolm Turnbull and then the tweet that followed. Do we know much about what happened there? Mm -hmm. Yep, so essentially after the tweet about uh, calling this a dumb deal and how it's not going to go through, everything just blew out of proportion. It was a grenade, grenade into a narrow in manners. And currently, as of today, we have no idea what's happening. Malcolm Turnbull insists that the deal is going forward. We now know that the number that the U.S. initially agreed to was 1,200, I think, or 1,250, yes, something like that, 1,200 odd. Um, so we know that, but the other question that we didn't know the answers to two months ago, we still don't know now. Um, but we do know that the assessments have stopped. Um, we don't know if the U.S. officials have left Madison Nauru, but we know they've stopped assessing it. Um, so what's going to happen? Trump's, at, Trump's saying it's not going to go through, we're not going to take him. Malcolm Turnbull saying, no, it was a deal made prior to his administration. It was a deal between two sovereign nations. It's going to go through. So we'll let you know how it goes. Any questions about that? Was priority being given to children in that research? Yes. So prior, priority is always given to children, followed by families. Um, let's hope for the best. Let's hope for the best. Um, I think the government, children are a problem for kids, uh, for, for the government now. Uh, that's 100% sure. Um, kids have been used as little chess pieces in their little games, and the general Australian public are a lot more aware of that than they were about maybe 12 months ago. And the government acknowledges that you know the fact that they're keeping children in for five years is not making people happy. So they're aware of that. So whatever happens in this U.S. deal, I suspect and I hope more hope than suspect that something will happen to those children, all 44 plus the children in the community right now. It's very confusing for people when. You know, I mean, it's not okay that that deal was made. It's not, and, and now we're yeah. opposed to Trump. I mean, everybody's opposed to Trump, but we're opposed to Trump because he's saying no. But really, we should have them here. Yeah. But we can't That's do exactly that. Right. And then we're sending them there to an environment which is not okay as no. well. And everybody's going, oh, naughty Trump. Well, well no, it's not possible. No. If Trump can cause a dumb deal, like that's saying something, yeah. guys. Come on. Um, the whole thing is just so immoral. It's and immoral, and there's a lot of emphasis, as you said, being given to how Trump's ruining this deal, whereas, no, that's not even the problem. The problem is we're outsourcing our responsibilities. Yes. We're outsourcing sourcing our duties and responsibilities. So it's a distraction yeah. from the so main topic, So as a refugee really. centre, our number one goal, and, that, and the campaign that we've been running for over 12 months now, is bring them here. Mm. The Bring Them Here campaign is quite big now. Um, it's just bring them to Australia, resettle them here, permanent or temporary, we'll take anything right now, just bring them here, away from these... Yeah. And we're talking about on Manus and Nauru, um, 1,200 mm. people. Like, it's not a whole yeah. Considering this, making it sound like there was this flooding it. Like that is the number of um, humanitarian refugees that we take now. 65? 60? 13,000. 13,000. And that's gone up, hasn't it? From or it went down and down. Then it's gone like up. When it was down, it's gone up. It said it might stay the same. It used to be around 20, and then it yeah. went way down, didn't it? Yeah. But, and then we said we'd take uh, 14,000 Syrians? 12, Sorry, 12,000 12. Syrian refugees. And um, I was in Canada a week ago, and I would tell people, I was like, oh, you guys, like, I'm just so happy when I was in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, you guys would said you take like 25,000 refugees and you've already resettled them all. Guess how many Australia's taking? They're like, what? I'm like, five. I'm like, oh, 5,000. I'm like, no. no, as far as I know, the number five. five yeah, because we haven't... And they were like, <laughs> what? Like, that really... It's One crazy. thing we do do very well, though, is, is we do have really good resettlement. 
<laughs> that's, I'm like, that we've got when we get to that stage, when we get to the stage yeah. where they've been assessed and, they, and they, they've mm. been given, they, they're, there's quite good support. But good support. I mean, it's, it's bridging visas aren't they? No, 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 no. I don't mean you yeah, mean where the conditions are tough. I mean like a very, very client surgery when they're on bridging visas. Services can't the services can't support the people yeah. on bridging visas, yeah. but when they the, the services yeah. that support the refugees that have got the final stamp. Mm. Mm. Is, is very good. It's, it's very good, rubbish yeah. that goes on before that. Isn't mm. it? Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And a lot of other countries don't have that bit. Mm. So we've I, got to do that bit really. We've got to continue to do that bit very well. Are you trying to make us yeah. feel like? No. No. no, no it's good to saying, celebrate what we're doing well. I think that's well, important. Making sure that we continue to do that yeah. really well. Yeah. In, and get more. You know? yeah. 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 Absolutely. It's what I'm arguing for. Definitely. Yeah. Rather than just say, oh, we'll have 15,000 and, and they're not, there's no settlement services mm. to support them, and then there's not very good experiences for those families, particularly if they come from very different cultural mm. backgrounds. But when we do do that with cultural support and settlement mm. services that do that job really, really well. Yeah, I agree. I want to put a number on how much we're spending on per detainee in Manus and Nauru. Mm. Numbers to be a her detainee. Yeah, yeah, Put a number on it. Guess yeah, a number. Guess a number. Say higher or lower. <laughs> oh no, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous, yeah. Anyone? Guesses? Come on, kids. <laughs> Hands up. We know we'll get Sorry. it wrong. So. <laughs> is it for you? I have a four person. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, in the thousands. Per, per person per, per year. Per person per year. Yeah, $400,000. Per person yeah, per year. Per person. They're not being staying. No education, no proper medical, simply to house them in ridiculous housing. Oh, that, We're paying. that is just so ridiculous. So someone is popular. The top 1% of each nation. That is so stupid. That is such a yeah. so stupid. Contractors, yeah. Yeah. So the contractors, yeah. And that's, I don't think people realise that. That's our money. That's, that's a lot of money. money. <laughs> if people realise, and it's $25,000 a year to settle someone in community detention. So yeah. it's a big difference. Like, to have the alternatives... It's not that we can't. It's cheaper and more humane. We just won't. Mm. And that's because our purpose is to keep them out. And we're trying to be as hardline as yeah. possible. And which is working, let me tell you. Which is definitely working. People are afraid to come to Australia mm. now because they don't want to be in Nara for five years. So it's obviously worked. But what are we doing with the people already here is what needs to be. Mm. And the US deal was meant to be Australia's way of coping with already here, but that's obviously, you know, gone to a grey area now. Then why are we not taking people from Indonesia? Why are we not taking people from Indonesia? Exactly that's, right. There's no rationale. Yeah, well, people, part of the humanitarian intake, we're processing them extremely slow. Very, very, very slowly. So there are still people simply waiting, who may have already been recognised as refugees, but they're still waiting to be resettled. Yeah. So, so it's those people, yeah. Most of the people I met got refugee in Indonesia when I was there got refugee status after a year or two, mm. and then they had to wait another year or two to be resettled. Um, so the, the shortest amount of time that you wait in Indonesia seems to be three years. But I, And that, the saddest thing was like I met a family who literally a few days ago just got resettled in Canada. Like I was over the moon. But um, she was family, a mother and two kids, whereas a young single man, it's like seven years, they're just not getting settled like it's really really tough for them. Three years is a long time. That's the half a child's education. It's three years of like it's half in the school again. Yeah. 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 And the good thing is like I'm sure you've noticed Yeah I'm sure you've noticed in your schools and I know the schools I've worked at we once the kids do get into public like Australian schooling they get a lot of support. They get a lot of funding, they get a lot of support around that, they don't pay for schooling. It's perfect. Like, I know the school that I work closely at has an excellent refugee-based program, and they're looked after so well, and there's, like, extra teachers and extra resources being poured into making sure that these kids catch up on those lost years of education and that their mental well-being is looked after. So that's the point that makes me heartbroken, because it takes $25,000 to resettle a child into the community, and it takes a number of years, some good teachers to get them back to where they should be, give them back their childhood. But instead, we're pouring gazillions of dollars into keeping them locked up offshore, away from our site. Uh, we've spoken about alternatives before. Any questions about that? 
So alternatives are cheaper, they're faster and more human. That's the end of the story, but we're refusing to accept it. They're actually um, 80% cheaper than, that's the official stat, they're 80% cheaper than keeping a child locked up in detention, like a child or a person in detention. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for having us talk for us today. Mm -hmm. I'll be to, we'll open to questions yeah. now. Yeah. Talk more. Um, what's happening with the deal with America? America. Trump is mad for me. Completely mad. Can, I, just that thing. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about like, how you're funded? How are you funded? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, <laughs> of course. So we are a very small organisation. It's just the two of us leading a group with some board members. Uh, we have some loyal supporters, some funders, who have been funding us from day one. They've been with us for quite a long time. So we get quite a large amount of sum from like four or five partners. Um, and then it's just normal funding from crowdfunding essentially. And membership. You've got membership, haven't you? Um, like you a, can you sign up. Don't, you yeah. don't have official membership, no. Yeah. And look, in, in all honesty, chill out probably won't be existing for a very long time after, uh, maybe after the US still goes through, because one of our fundamental goals is to get the kids yeah. out, and we suspect that kids will be out in some capacity whatsoever in the next few, few, few months. So we will be wrapping up our work in the next few months. It has been made as an executive decision. Um, we're looking at probably the next few months. However, is that the good thing... Sorry? Um, I think they'll go with the US deal, the 50 US deal. Let's see how we go. The questions are still unanswered. So, for a legal perspective, for me, it's very hard to say I'm happy with the US deal because yeah. I just don't know. Like, our families can be reunited. Is everyone going to be covered? And what happens to the people who don't get covered? Do they stay in Nauru? Do they stay in detention? Do they get resettled in Nauru? Do they get sent back? But the government will say, if, if US takes them, they'll get kids will be the first to go, you think. I, I would think because You'd hope. of the, not because of, not because I think the government is in any way humane, but because I think it will get, it will okay, get but what if a child's government. father has got a negative security test? Mm -hmm. Does yeah. the child get sent and not the father, or does the father get sent because of the child, or does the child stay because of the father's got a negative security, negative security test? So there's a lot of questions there. Um, for chill out perspective, um, we work very closely with the End Child Detention Coalition, which you girls should definitely look into. So what that is, is a 12-member organisation. Um, it includes like JRS, uh, Catholic Mission, a number of organisations across Australia working together to get kids out. It's an international coalition. So it's the International Detention Coalition, is that right? International End Child Detention Coalition. Uh, no, there's an International Detention Coalition, which we're a branch of. Um, so please, so once chill out, ceases to exist in our capacity that we are right now. We will continue with our work that we do um, through the coalition, which we're closely working with right now anyway. So even if you don't have us, you will have the coalition to rely on. Very similar work. We, we pretty much represent each other here. So I'll pass on the details of the coalition as well. Um, it's headed by two lovely ladies called Leanne and Michelle. They're based in, they're based in Melbourne, but we've got some partners here in Sydney as well. And what's the best way for us mm. to support the work that you're doing at the moment to get children out of detention? Various ways you can do that. Um, I guess the most straightforward way is to give us money. But right now, as, as I said, we are looking at closing down, so I probably wouldn't recommend giving money to us. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you could. I could buy some new pair of shoes. But um, donating to the Child Detention Coalition works directly into um, funding people like us and the cause. That's the monetary aspect. Um, another thing is I highly recommend you girls join Teachers for Refugees, um, which is literally a band of teachers nationwide who came together who are working against getting kids out. They organise things like talks and presentations and rallies and protests across the nation. Um, so I guess in, in that little group of Teachers for Refugees, you've got Moms for Refugees, Grandmothers for Refugees, Doctors for Refugees and Teachers for Refugees. Those are the four major groups. They're making quite a big scene, probably more than organisations like us because they're not qualified, like, like they're not lawyers speaking, they're just mums, or they're just grandmothers speaking about it, which is, I think, reaching out through the media and to politicians a lot more. And it was funny, because one of the grandmothers was telling me how she can call up any MP's office, and she will almost always get through, because she's an old lady. And no one says no to, no to old ladies. She'll always secure a meeting with them, whereas I could call them up, and I'll be on the waiting list for 10 years. So, yeah, so there's those people having an effect, and you guys being teachers should definitely think about joining them. 
Um, you can do things like call, right now there's a drive um, to call up your local MPs and also Scott, Scott, Scott Peter Dutton and um, I'm a little bit back, aren't I? <laughs> Still living in oh, so it's Wednesday. <laughs> you never know. Um, and speaking to them directly about the US deal. So um, Refugee Council of Australia just let out a whole, I think on their website, I'll provide you guys the links, um, and they have a list of how, who to call, what to say, and what to ask for them. And it's a very like, black and white, anyone can follow it. Um, I've been passing it around with my local supporters. Um, you just stay up to date and make sure your voice is heard. I think that's the best way. And I think teachers are in a very good position because you guys do work with children. You like child's rights are your crux, your work. And for you to speak up against the government in relation to this is very powerful and it's it's just very moving. Can add to that? Yeah. What else can we can they can these girls do? Yeah, I think um lobbying to the government's really important because yeah. the government will only kind of shift when they feel like um, important people care about it. Well, you guys yeah. are important. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's really good to have teachers especially speak out. But the government will only kind of shift once the population kind of, you know, they have to go with what the majority is feeling. Yeah. Um, and with that, like, I also think it's really important just to talk to your colleagues and families about it and share what's happening. I think, sadly, there's a lack of education on the area. We go to panel events. It's really nice you guys had us speak here as well as that, see more films like Chasing Some, I highly recommend, just to get a really good idea of what's happening, and have your friends over to watch Chasing Some. I've done that. We tell school kids that, we're like, have a pizza party. <laughs> um, I think adults can do that. And also getting your kids, like I know you guys are early childhood teach, um, trained, you work with young kids, but from getting kids involved is one of the best ways. Kids calling up MPs, they freak out. Kids, like, they freak out when kids and grandmothers call them that's the old and the young talking about against their government or if it's labor you know talking against the government that they hate and they, they love it they freak out and they're like wow so there's a child in 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 sydney calling about this matter it must be of important and if you have a child calling every day or every week that builds up and then that awareness spreads and that's what we're going for slow strategic movement to move the general political stance on how we treat our children there are some challenges in that, um, and that's actually happened for a number of early childhood teachers who, whose organisations have not understood that children can have a voice, and those teachers have, have been disciplined about that. So it's a real challenge in... Disciplined by... By their organisations. Right. So there's some challenges that's in... Rubbish. Of course, yeah. <laughs> of course, but there's some challenges for... Um, even the general population to understand that children have, have a voice. voice and that they do understand issues yeah. and can have it's that voice. It's about target audience as well. So when I'm mm. talking to you girls, I don't explain that children have rights because you know that. But then in some other context, I will have to start with children are human beings, they have X, Y and Z rights mm. and we're not giving it to them. So speak, knowing how to talk to your target audience is very important. And I think... You're right, not a lot of people acknowledge that kids do have a voice. I've got parents who come to school who don't care about what their child thinks. And, and you've all seen that. Like, you know, this is what I think is best for my child, so I will do it. And I will make them go to soccer lessons because I think that's the best thing for them. And so giving that child a voice back to them is very hard for most adults. And for us, we're not telling them, give their voice back, you know what, just give them a childhood. And that's a concept that most people can connect with because we've all had childhoods, good or bad, we've had one. And if you speak to them about giving a child the right to live through their ch childhood, give them the experience that you may have had, you know, ha have a fight with your sibling, you know, break a leg or two, you know, have that experience. Probably not at the same time. <laughs> Probably not at the same time. But have that experience, have that laugh, be able to experience things that you may have experienced when you were a five-year-old or a ten-year-old. Okay, that I feel people connect with a lot more than giving them their rights, because you know, adults most of them don't feel like they've got enough rights. So in terms of speaking about rights, I tend to focus a lot more on giving the childhood back to a child. And that connects more. I think the narrative there is a lot more stronger with most audience. I'd recommend that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much to Zoe and Nauru for that presentation from Chill Out. 
You can find Chill Out online at www.chillout.org. That's Chill Out with one L. A quick reminder that we're taking next week off and we'll be back in two weeks' time. As always, we'd really appreciate your support to help us grow the podcast. You can support us directly for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Just head to patreon.com backslash show. And thanks so much to people who are supporting us. Um, it's been really encouraging to see that. If you can't do that, a rating and review on the iTunes store is just as good and it helps more people to find the show. If you want to get in touch with us, we have a whole range of ways to do so. Head over to our website, earlyeducationshow.com, or we're on Twitter and Facebook at Early Edu Show on both social networks. You can also get in touch with us individually on Twitter. I'm Leanne M. Gibbs 3, Lisa is Lisa J. Bryant, and Liam is Liam McNicholas. So on behalf of Lisa and Liam, it's bye from them and bye from me. Bye.